This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by the 21st Annual Critics' Choice Awards. Tune in live January 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, to see who in film and TV takes the top prizes. Only on A&E. And by Carbonite. Keep your digital files safe this year. Protect your photos, music, and documents with automatic cloud backup from Carbonite. Try it free without a credit card at Carbonite.com and use the offer code CULTURE to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Lazarus Edition. It's Wednesday, January 13th, 2016, and on today's show, we're going to start off talking about David Bowie, who, just days after releasing his last album, Black Star, has left the world at the age of 69. His death has come as a shock to the cultural world. We'll mourn him together and discuss his legacy with Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic, and with Steve Metcalf, who, though he's on leave this month, wanted to come back in just for this segment. Then... Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight is extra long at three hours running time and extra wide, being shown at 70 millimeters in some theaters. We'll discuss, is it also extra good? And finally, the new Netflix series, Making a Murderer, is a 10-part true crime documentary that highlights injustices in the criminal justice system. And joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Dana. And sitting in Steven's chair. How does it feel over there? Feels nice and warm. (laughs) (laughs) He kept it warm for you. Is Slate culture writer Aisha Harris. Hi, Aisha. Hi, Dana. But before we get started, Julie, I think we have a bit of business. What is it? We do. We have two pieces of business. First, I want to tell our listeners what our Slate Plus segment will be today. Uh, We got called out for the fact that in our Q&A session that we recorded, our episode a couple weeks ago, we were asked a very specific question about the state of podcast criticism, and we answered a different one about podcasts as an art form. So we will actually go back and answer that listener's question with the help of Nick Kwa, who is the audience development lead for Panoply. And I also wanted to remind our listeners that our beloved sister show, Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's wonderful parenting podcast, is doing a live taping in Brooklyn on January 26th. We'll be at the Bell House, and they're having a special guest, poet and first lady of New York City, Sherlane McRae. Other guests include Oliver Jeffers, the New York Times bestselling artist and illustrator of The Day the Crayons Quit. This is a book that my children adore. I'm very excited to see him there. Lori Berkner, bestselling children's recording artist. Rebecca Stead, Newbery Medal winner and New York Times bestselling author of children's fiction, including When You Reach Me, and, of course, star among stars, Allison's husband, John Cook. We're finally going to get him on stage and grill him about being the subject of Allison's parenting disquisitions. If you are a Slate Plus member, you can get 30% off your ticket purchase. To get tickets, head on over to slate.com slash live, and I will certainly see you guys there. All right, Dana, what's up first today? So for our first segment today, we are, of course, going to talk about David Bowie, who left us on Sunday at the age of 69. And um, the world went into collective shock yesterday because I think it was known only by those very close to Bowie that, that he was sick at all, he, that he had been battling cancer for the last 18 months. So Stephen is on book leave this month, but he wanted to come back and talk about David Bowie. We also have Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic, who has a wonderful tribute to David Bowie on the, on the site now called He Could Be Heroes. Carl, I'm going to start with you as our music critic. Um, when you heard about David Bowie having passed, how did you begin to approach sitting down and, and writing about such a huge figure in, in pop culture and in music? 
Yeah, it felt like one of the more difficult versions of that task I've ever had to do. I'm, I'm out on the West Coast for a few months um, teaching a class, and so I was awake and, uh, and online as the news started to break, and really was kind of stunned into speechlessness by, you know, the unexpectedness of the news, and I think also the timing, you know, the, his latest album, Black Star, um, was released on Friday, two days before he died, and so given... David Bowie's kind of history as a theatrical manipulator and um, someone who's played with images of his own death and, and of the kind of characters he's created, death, over time. For a while, I found, it, I found it really difficult to even believe that it was true. I spent a long time sort of looking for um, some kind of official confirmation. And when it finally struck that, that it really was true, I think all of that kind of uncanny mystery of, of the timing made it particularly difficult to start gathering thoughts together. And I think also that, you know, Bowie's kind of immortalness as a figure, I think partly because of that, those changes of, of incarnation and persona that we're familiar with from his early career made it seem like, you know, he would never die. He would just sort of molt into a new kind of figure. And, um, and so it really was, it really was one of those cases where you are rocked back on your platform heels a little bit. Stephen, what about you? What is it about Bowie that made you feel like, I've got to be part of this conversation, I have to, to, to be here to mourn him? I can't say it was that I was a huge fan of David Bowie, or I should say that I've never experienced such a stark binary as before he passed away, you know, before a famous person passed away and after they passed away. I think it was his birthday a few days ago. A bunch of people were celebrating it on social media, and I snidely tweeted, I'm celebrating Bowie's birthday by listening to Paul's Boutique, probably the album least influenced by David Bowie. And then as soon as it was clear that he was gone, I realized that was exactly the wrong response to have to David Bowie or his birthday or um, anything about him, really. That, in fact, here was this person who made gigantic contributions to popular music, to fashion, to art, you know, to popular culture, who wrote you know, extraordinary songs doing it. The songs weren't a pretext for image making or, um, you know, sort of selling and perpetuating his own visual image, arresting as it was. He was an extraordinary song crafter. I think a great singer. I'd be curious to know if others agree, but really a tremendously gifted singer, in addition to being a great theatrical self-presenter. But I was struck by how many people said about him, you know, they emphasized the space alien aspect of his persona, which of course has been dominant since his first hit, Space Oddity, this kind of curio of a song that dropped from as if from outer space in 1969, after which he finally had a public persona after trying for years to become a pop star. He had a public persona to build on. He built upon it beautifully, obviously, by creating Ziggy Stardust. So he's had this otherworldly persona forever. And it suddenly hit me, you know, this is the space alien who was also your friend, that there's underneath the otherness and kabuki of being David Bowie, there was clearly a literate, gentle, and kind human being. And until he died, I didn't know that that was a really dominant current to his music. And as soon as he died, I understood it. And I hated myself for being glib and snide. Carl, I'm so interested to hear you talk about Bowie musically. I, you know, I think Aisha and I can probably speak here as the generation that did not grow up with David Bowie as a 
formative part of the pop culture mix, but more as a eminence grease legend from a past generation that seemed important and worth adulation, but not someone that spoke to me directly as a kid, apart from like seeing Labyrinth at my friend Phoebe Putnam's house in the 80s. Um, <laughs> so he's someone that has my respect, but not my knowledge or love. But when you, th- when I think about David Bowie, what comes to mind is not sound, but image, right? There's so many different iconic photos of him, eras of him, styles of his that I can call to mind. And I know lots of David Bowie songs, but it's not like a, a single riff or a single lyric that comes to me. It's not the music that came to me first. That This is primarily ignorance on my part. I will be the first to stipulate. But I'm curious, Carl, what you think his prime musical legacy is or will be. Well, I think musically, the, you know, the, he worked in a wide sort of range of styles. Um, and one of the things that was important about him in a lot of ways was that he had an uncanny kind of ear for collaborators so that, you know, early on he was sort of working in, you know, he sort of began from a kind of 50s rock and roll template to some degree. And, you know, I I think we can't discount the place of people like Little Richard as predecessors to him. You know, he said that one of his earliest ambitions was to play saxophone in Little Richard's band. But then he, you know, he worked with people from Brian Eno and, and Iggy Pop through to Sheik's Nile Rogers in his, in his kind of Let's Dance phase and all of these different sounds and that were all productive of things that flowed out from him, you know, and many of the sounds and styles of, of sort of punk and new wave drew on him as a source. And so it, it wasn't so much a consistent sound as that awareness of a sound and what a sound would mean. He was kind of, you know, one of the great rock conceptualists. And I think one of the things that really informed that is that his his interest in a lot of ways was kind of a, as a maker of musical theater. You know, he wanted to write musicals before he became a rock star. And in, in a lot of ways, he used rock as a venue for that kind of storytelling and also that kind of attention to drama and accessible hooks and all of the, you know, so that he wasn't just an avant-gardist. He was also a populist on this level and informed by that kind of stagey sense of, of what could be done with music which allowed a lot of people in to the kinds of experiments that he was doing who might otherwise not have found their way through and found their way to the reference points that he was touching on. So it's kind of that double-sidedness, the sort of old-fashionedness and forward-lookingness that in some ways distinguishes him from the kind of more underground figures that he often was associated with, particularly in the mid-70s, when he and, you know, were doing kind of minimalist experiments in Berlin. He still had an ear for how those things were going to, you know, reach a kid of 14 out in, out in the middle of nowhere and allow them to sort of reimagine themselves out of this material that would have been unfamiliar and maybe inaccessible without that clear sense of how things were going to land on the ear and paint pictures for people. That's so interesting, Carl, that you say that, because I do feel like when I... I'm often surprised to learn that a song is by David Bowie because it sounds way too normal to be <laughs> the music that I imagine would go with the images I've seen of David Bowie. I'm thinking of the song Gene Genie, which like someone put on a mixtape for me at some point, and which is a great song, but which just doesn't sound otherworldly in any way. Gene Genie lives on his back Gene Genie loves Jimmy Stacks I would say also, if you just were to ask 
what happened between the you know what happened in rock and roll history between the breakup of the Beatles and the first Ramones record, you really could come up with a one word answer. It was Bowie, right? I mean, it was you know between the end of the '60s and punk rock, there was the murmurings of of punk rock in the Stooges and um, television and a couple of other you know early proto punk bands. But really, what happened in rock and roll in the early '70s was the advent of David Bowie and glam. <laughs> There's a snowman waiting in the sky He'd like to come and meet us But he thinks he'd blow our minds There's a snowman waiting in the sky He's told us not to blow it Cause he knows it's all worthwhile He told it. let the children lose it Let the children use it Let all the children do get Yeah, and I think that um, North Americans experience that at, you know, still yet one more removed because, you know, while glam was a huge movement in Britain and really kind of a popular phenomenon like many pop phenomena, in some ways we experienced it as if it were, you know, falling to us and, and coming from a distant star. It was, it was represented sort of solely by Bowie for most of us, not with the context of other stars around them. And so that alienness really mattered. And I think, you know, when you talk about him as a phase in rock music, I think the really important thing about that crowd is that they were in a lot of ways rebuking the sort of earthy, organic, authentic, bluesy myth of, of 60s music, that kind of white baby boom sense of, you know, Janis, Janis Joplin getting down to it and turning back towards a showbiz artifice and imagining that you could pretend to all kinds of things and not just be you know, sort of dressed in scarves and blue jeans, but you could be dressed in any way. You could make any kind of sound. You could make this kind of plastic imaginary realm. And that and that was really um, a, a stark difference from the music that had preceded them. Going to, or speaking to what you said, Carl, about this idea of Bowie as like this alien figure um, who people, who outsiders resonate with, I, like Julia, I was kind of on the periphery of Bowie dumb like I was aware of him over the last day or so as I've like been immersing myself in Bowie I've realized that I knew a lot more songs than I thought but I kind of wish that I had had him as a teenager like I feel like he speaks to this very outsiderness otherness that you know most teenagers experience and 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 this feeling of like feeling weird about whatever things you're into that other people aren't into. And if if I had had him as a teenager instead of like, you know, I don't know, Spice Girls or whatever I had, <laughs> I, um, I feel like I would have like felt, you know, a little bit better. But I also think he works so well now because the fact that even from his earliest records, there's a song, uh, Please Mr. Gravedigger, on one of his earlier albums that's just speaking so bluntly about death. Please, Mr. Gravedigger, don't feel ashamed as you dig little holes for the dead and the maimed. Please, Mr. Gravedigger, I couldn't care if you found a golden bucket full of some girl's hair and you put it in your bucket. He kind of encompasses not just all these different personas, but he can work in pretty much any phase of anyone's life in a way. 
I had only one thing to add to that, Aisha, and I thought of it when Carl was talking about um, Ziggy Stardust and you know, different characters that he created, the thin white duke, these different people that he would morph into, and what a huge part of his career that was. And, you know, if you compare that to something like, I don't know, Beyonce's Sasha Fierce, that to me feels very much like a, 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 a kind of a marketing personality or like a, she's still Beyonce. You know what I mean? There's not really a sense that she's sort of morphed or changed into this different being and is entering this different phase of her career in the way that Bowie used persona. And I wondered, Carl, if you if you want to talk about that at all, since your piece, He Could Be Heroes, is all about sort of Bowie as a cult figure and how he assembled this worldwide group of misfit acolytes, a little bit the story that uh, that Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine tells, right, kind of indirectly, and the way that he orchestrated fashion and staging and makeup and his look. I just can't think of any other pop star, male pop star especially, whose look and whose change of look was as integral to his performance persona. It, it wasn't at all just a sort of surface layer on top of his singing personality, right? It was. It came from his core. Yeah, I mean, I think that one, it goes back to what I was saying about Bowie as a conceptualist, that, that each of his albums and each of his phases were kind of conceived as a piece that included the visual and included the look that he was going to adopt for that time and, and the sound. I think that it, we tend, I think, in North America to get a little too caught up in the changing persona thing, which really only happened for a brief period of his career. When you think of the sort of 40 years span of it, it was, you know, it was kind of a crucial part of it, obviously, during the 70s, but it is also something that became a bit of a press hook to hang things on. But that, but people followed from that, you know, and the kind of changing looks of someone like Madonna, for example, you know, seem clearly to follow from, from Bowie's example. And I think the, the important thing also to bring up while we're talking about that aspect of things is that while Bowie's own sexuality and the extent to which he really was a queer figure in his own life has perhaps been exaggerated both by him and others um, over the years. The, the fact that he was kind of a directly open, um, inviting the reading of queerness through his that early work was incredibly precedent-setting and in some ways kind of set the mode for how outsider sexualities would be dealt with in pop and rock for a long time to come. I think only until more recent phases of kind of um, a broader acceptance of queer sexuality has have new forms been invented to to speak to that in pop music and in some and that's you know when we talk about sort of teen outsiders and the and the strangeness and misfitness that a lot of people channel through Bowie and and reflect back to themselves through Bowie it's important to note that that sexual outsiderness is a particularly key part of it. Would it be fair to say that Bowie kind of primed us all for? someone like Michael Jackson or Prince, who also I feel like in some ways may or may not have been influenced by that sort of androgyny or that just open queerness in a way. Yeah, I think those figures for sure. You know, if you think of sort of New Wave as kind of the post-Bowie working out of some of the questions that he introduced and stylistic ideas that he introduced, the way that the New Wave flowed through the rest of 80s music is really huge, right? And its, it's influence is kind of everywhere, and the things that it licensed are kind of everywhere, and certainly people like Michael Jackson's kind of peak thriller phase and, and people like Prince for certain are definitely inheritors and crossing his influence with other streams. And I think you can even see it, you know, right down to hair metal in some ways. You know, it's kind of everywhere in 80s music. Carl, before we adjourn, I'm curious to hear what you make of Black Star. Should should we send all of our listeners into the back catalog, or should we send them toward this newest work, or both? 
Well, I would say both for sure. I mean, you know, there's so much to be discovered in the back catalog, but the lovely thing about Blackstar is as a kind of final work for him, you know, compared to some of his kind of later period albums, I feel like Bowie, you know, with the now in retrospect, we realize awareness that his own illness had conferred on him really sort of went to the intense core of his own voice and, and his own vision on the new album. And it's really, you know, stands pretty well alongside a lot of his classic work. And it's, it's got this kind of driving pulse. It doesn't feel like it's grasping around in the way that a lot of his later work is. And in some ways, it's, a, it's sort of a channeling of a lot of, of a lot of his thoughts, you know, on mortality, but also on, on the society that he remade in many ways. And, and it's all there. It's really a rich listen. All right. Well, there's much, much more to be said, obviously, about David Bowie and his life and career. But maybe we could end by just going around and each mentioning a favorite David Bowie song. Stephen, let's start with you. Do you have a favorite? Um, I'll very quickly say uh, Three Starman um, is just an eternally great song. Man Who Sold the World is great, both the Nirvana cover and the original is fantastic. And um, Sound and Vision from Low is just such classic mid-period Bowie in collaboration with Eno. It's uh, almost a perfect three minutes of rock and roll. I'm so with you on Sound and Vision. In fact, you just stole my favorite song. I'm going to have to find a new one when it's my turn. (laughs) Carl, what about you? Can you name a favorite? It's difficult to name a favorite, but I think one of the songs that comes to mind, and especially in kind of an elegiac mood like this, um, is Wild as the Wind, which is such a sort of deep, broad, almost landscape of a song, and, and particularly enriched, I think, by thinking also of Nina Simone's cover of it. And I like the idea of those two figures speaking back and forth to each other. How about you, Aisha? I know that you're probably the most David Bowie neophyte of all of us, but in your peregrinations through the web yesterday, did you discover any favorites? Um, well, I would have to go with one that was I actually really loved before he died. Um, and My boyfriend's a huge David Bowie fan, and he introduced me to Labyrinth uh, a few years ago, and I love the magic dance song that he does with the baby <laughs> and the Muppets. Um, I don't know. There's just something like joyful about it and it's like the kind of song that I feel like would be fun to dance to in a in a club if it happened to come on in a bizarre club plucked from the 70s uh, or the 80s but yeah magic dance is probably my favorite and that's making me realize I need to watch Labyrinth with my daughter. When we were talking about Bowie at dinner last night, we started showing her some clips and video, and she knew his songs without quite knowing who he was, and uh, she was so fascinated by just his his look as a figure. In fact, the first thing she noticed was that he had one brown eye and one blue eye, right? He has two different colored eyes, maybe one maybe. brown and one green. When I watch it, I can't help but just stare at his crotch. Like, <laughs> so, like it's just there <laughs> the whole time. Uh, Julia, um, have you got a song for us? Um... Ah, there's so many. I mean, I like Oh You Pretty Things. That's oh, a, yeah. Lovely that's, song. That's a that's a great one. Well, since Stephen stole mine, and since Aisha mentioned David Bowie also was a film actor, which is something we haven't talked about at all, I think instead of a song, I will recommend a film, which is Nicholas Rogue's Man Who Fell to Earth, which is maybe the best possible cinematic orchestration of that quality of David Bowie's physicality that we've been discussing. He is incredible, and it also has this wonderful, wonderful sex scene where he's remembering back to his home planet and what it was like to be with his his partner, his, his, his wife back on his home planet, I guess, and just this kind of imagining of what sex might be like on another planet is very David Bowie and very Nicholas Rogue at the same time. (laughs) All right. Well, Carl and Stephen, thank you so much for calling in to talk with us about David Bowie. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Dana.
And please, we invite you to come to our Facebook page and share your own favorite David Bowie moments, video clips, songs, whatever you have. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. And now it's time to hear from our first sponsor. Julia, what have we got? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by the 21st Annual Critics' Choice Awards on A&E, which includes the biggest names in television and film from this year. Hosted by comedian T.J. Miller from Silicon Valley and Deadpool, this night is the night when it's critics who choose the winners. They are the tastemakers, and so it'll be a sophisticated event with irreverent comedy at its best. Mad Max leads all the nominations, and Star Wars The Force Awakens scored a nomination for Best Picture. Other nominees include Leonardo DiCaprio for The Revenant and Fargo, which leads all nominations for TV. Tune in live January 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific for one of the biggest nights in Hollywood, the Critics' Choice Awards hosted by T.J. Miller on A&E. All right, Dana, what's next? All right, on to our second segment. So The Hateful Eight is Quentin Tarantino's eighth film, as he perhaps a bit too cleverly notes in the uh, the, the opening title card of the film. It's uh, something of an unusual film for him as well in its, its size, its scope, but it's not so unusual in terms of its historical project. Like his last two movies, Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, it's set at a moment in the historical past, but attempts to be trying to revise that past in some way that has to do with our present. We've all seen The the Hateful Eight. Uh, Tarantino tends to generate heated discussions, and I hope he will do so here. But let's kick off by listening to a clip from the movie. To set this up a little bit, we find ourselves here near the beginning of the movie in a stagecoach occupied by Samuel L. Jackson as a union major who's picked up a ride from Kurt Russell, whose character is known as John the Hangman Ruth. He, in turn, is bringing his prisoner, Daisy Domergue, played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, into a town called Red Rock, where she is to be hung for murder. I see you ain't got mixed emotions about bringing a woman to a rope. By woman, you mean her? No, I do not have mixed emotions. So you're taking her in the Red Rock to hide? <laughs> you bet. You gonna wait around and watch it? Oh, you know I am. I want to hear her neck snap with my own two ears. You never wait to watch them hang? My bounties never hang, because I never bring them in alive. Never. Never, ever. We talked about this in Chattanooga. Banging desperate men in alive is a good way to get yourself dead. Can't catch me sleeping if I don't close my eyes. I don't want to work that hard. No one said a job's supposed to be easy. No one said it's supposed to be that hard, neither. That little lady, why they call him the hangman. When the handbill says dead or alive, the rest of us shoot you in the back up on top of a perch somewhere and bring you in dead over a saddle. But when John Roof, the hangman, catches you, you don't dive no bullet in the back. Mm-mm. When the hangman catches you, you hang. So we chose a clip from early in the movie so as not to get into too many spoilers, but to set up what happens afterwards, essentially, we find ourselves assembled in the middle of a snowstorm in the Wyoming mountains at this place called Minnie's Haberdashery, which becomes kind of like a stage set for the rest of the movie. There are actually slightly more than eight characters, so there's some debate as to who the hateful eight might be, but essentially the rest of the movie becomes this chamber piece with these characters stuck, snowed into this cabin, and various intrigues playing out in a Tarantinian way that gets really gory and violent. 
silent toward the end. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. Aisha, you've written a little on The Hateful Eight for Slate's Culture blog. I want to hear, first of all, your reaction. I really, really loved it more than I think most critics seem to have enjoyed it. I don't know if I was primed for it. I think a lot of critics have accused it of being a little too slow at the beginning, which I think you might have as well in your review. Did you? Or? I don't have a problem with the slowness or the okay. length, no. Yeah, so I, I don't know. Just, I really liked the style of the dialogue feels kind of it, like a departure for Tarantino in a good way. It felt very, to go with the, the whole road, road show presentation in which there's a minutes-long overture and an intermission, like it feels like a very old, like classic Hollywood type of film. So I really enjoyed it. I've seen it twice now. It feels like the first movie Tarantino has made that feels very set in the present, um, even though it is set a little bit after the Civil War. Like, it deals with all these issues that, whether he intended them to or not, just felt especially relevant in 2015. Julia, what about you? What's your, your response to Tarantino in general and your response to this Tarantino? I am I feel a little bit about Tarantino the way I feel about Wes Anderson, which is every time you see something by him, you know it will be utterly distinctive and it will be thoroughly entertaining. And yet I never feel like the result transcends the stylishness of the thing to me. So I thought I would be in for an entertaining night at the movies. My great hope when I learned that it was about a bunch of people stuck in a cabin in a snowstorm, I was like, maybe it'll just be like that great scene where it's just Christoph Waltz talking in the cabin in Inglorious Bastards. And it's one of those classic Tarantino scenes where there's a conversation and secrets and the power balance is shifting among characters in ways that are slippery and surprising. Uh, and that was, I think, the and intent. That, and that was exactly what it was. So I was quite satisfied with it from an entertainment perspective. The question of whether the film has something interesting to say about America's racial history or America's racial present is one that I'm very eager to discuss with you guys today. Like many critics, I admire and think it's exci an exciting direction in Tarantino's career that he's starting to engage with American history in these lurid but inventive ways. I think it's better for the world that these movies are being made than not, probably. Also, like many critics, I don't fully trust the depth of his interest or the ambition of his messages. And when he liberally peppers these movies with the N-word, it does not necessarily feel like necessary period realism. It feels like aggressive audience poking that I'm not sure there is a moral defense for. And yet, I come out of it thinking it's like mini stew. Like, it's an interesting good stew. I'm glad I consumed that stew, even though I turned my face away from the screen during a bunch of grisly moments. Dana, you describe this film as ineffably evil. Do you want to put some F in that ineff? <laughs> have, you, have you sorted out exactly what was evil about the it? The ineff word? No, I have not sorted out what was ineffably evil about it. Or for me, this whole direction that Tarantino has gone in. I mean, if you look at these three movies as a trilogy of sorts, right? Uh, Glorious Bastards, Django, and, and now this movie... All of them have somewhat of a similar historical project. They want to go back and, as you say, not and not use period realism at all, but use kind of a modern lens to look at some sort of historical atrocity and then find some sort of redress or redemption for that historical atrocity on behalf of the people who suffered the atrocity, who are always in a group that Tarantino didn't belong to. And it's not just American history. He does it with world history in Inglorious Bastards, right? He sort of 
gets revenge on the Jews' behalf for World War II. The, to me, these moral quests that he's setting off on in, the, in these movies strike me as, from the beginning, questionable and a bit queasy-making. And uh, as much as I enjoy his cinematic gifts, I mean, the guy is, like, leaking directorial talent from his eye sockets. He's an incredible scene-maker, right? He's, he's incredible at writing dialogue, this very specific kind of Tarantino dialogue that, as you say, is sort of modern and period at the same time and is very funny and character-building while also, you know, sort of maintaining that Tarantino and tone at all driving. times and plot driving. He structures this movie really well so that I think the three hours kind of fly by. But what he's actually doing, and here we're going to have to start getting into spoilers, so I'll probably just have to tiptoe around it. But it is safe to say that this all ends in a bloodbath and that many, many people die in horrible ways, some of whom deserve, right, in the in the film's logic, that death, and some of whom don't. And I'm just not sure in the end that whatever sort of message it is that Tarantino is trying to deliver is more important to him than that gory bloodbath and the kind of glee that he takes in it at the end. And that's especially true of the last scene of this movie, where it seems to me that all of the racial hatred that we've been witnessing throughout the movie just gets switched over into misogyny. And then what, we're all good? Like something about the way he wipes the moral slate clean at the end of these three movies that we're talking about, or that I'm talking about here, feels very unclean. And, and I feel like I'm sort of the, the, the queen of prude critics to say that because I know many people find that cinematic pleasure that he delivers enough. And for me, it always creates this conflict. I love the cinematic pleasure of this movie, particularly those opening shots in 70 millimeter of the stagecoach galloping through the mountains. I felt like this is great. We're getting into some sort of revisionist John Ford Western where it's going to be awesome. And then it really does turn into this very locked down drama all within four walls of this room. Well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Aisha, on how this speaks to the racial politics of 2015. But let me mount a potential defense or hypothetical defense, because I'm not quite sure where I come down on this. But one argument for this as a serious piece of historical consideration is you see the vast expanse of open country of America after the Civil War, and then you see where the Civil War has left the American psyche. And it is a bunch of murderous assholes locked in a room who can do nothing but distrust and dismember each other. That's not a terrible metaphor. And I also think, to your point about misogyny, so there's one primary female character in the movie, and again, without spoiling, you see from the opening scene, she she suffers many violent indignities throughout the movie. And she's basically shackled to Kurt Russell throughout the entire movie, right? Because he's her jailer, so he can do with her anything she he wants. She gets knocked around in the opening scene and it descends from there. I think that's fair to say. But I think it's possible to read the final scene as ironic, as a moment of racial reconciliation that completely ignores the gender hostility beneath it and that there's not celebration of the gender hostility, but an acknowledgement that even if you can find a moment of racial peace, which again, the uneasy racial peace that may or may not emerge at the end of the film is also worth discussing, they're still much rotten at the core of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're supposed to stagger out feeling gross and queasy. I don't think it's like Django where you're, you're supposed to, I think, walk out of Django going, hell yeah, and fist pumping in the air, and I definitely wasn't. In this movie, I don't think that's even the goal. Ayesha, tell us what you thought. Yeah. I struggle with Tarantino very much in the same way you do, Dana, especially in terms of the racial aspects. I actually think in most of his films, women are actually like generally get the 
juicy roles. He's I think as a, a, a director of women, he has done way more for women actor or for actresses. Than... I agree. He loves actresses, and Jennifer Jason Leigh gives an unbelievable performance in yeah. this movie. She I think in a in a movie that across the board has is has a great cast. I think she's the standout. Yeah, and you can say the same thing for Jackie Brown with Pam Greer and even um, Uma Thurman and Kill Bill. Like it, he doesn't get enough credit, I think, for the women he has championed as actresses. The racial politics is, yes, where it gets very queasy. And I agree, Julia, that the his use of the N-word tends to be very aggressive in a way that's not very meaningful. And I've all, I always approach his work tentatively because I do feel like he is, it's not always coming from a genuine place. At the same time, I feel like all of Tarantino's work feels very whether he's dealing with race or gender or violence, it all feels kind of cartoonish in a way to the point where I I don't feel as bothered by it as maybe I should. And I know tons of black critics and black commentators who just can't stand Tarantino. And that's just the way it is. Um, for me, and I wrote about this on Slate, what I saw was this kind of pattern within Tarantino's work of like revenge and especially revenge as it relates to uh, of a sexual nature. And there's one scene, I won't spoil it too much, but um, there's a scene where Samuel Jackson's character gets revenge on a Confederate general. So for me, I saw that as sort of a, I liked it. I liked the fact that, that this was the first time that a black character can have that sort of, even if it's just for a moment, because later on, Things get crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, the second half, the right? The second half really unfolds quite violently. But so, yeah, you're saying that at that moment, you see Samuel Jackson being the agent of that story rather than the, the passive object of the story. Exactly. And I mean, just to circle back to what I said about it feeling very present and feeling like it reflects 2015. I know Tarantino. I think he wrote this, and I don't think it changed much when he originally wrote it, like two or three years ago. I know it like leaked at one point, and he said he wasn't going to. Make it and then he made it. But um, especially considering what happened uh, in Charleston earlier last year and the fact that Dylan Roof, one of his comments supposedly to one of his victims was, you rape our, our women. And it, it just felt especially relevant because there's so much history with that and so much history directly connected to the Confederacy that it, it was hard for me to separate the two. I agree that that is a triumphant ending to the first act. That scene, while I think arguably overlong, is is brilliantly scripted. It's kind of a brilliant reversal of that myth of black male sexuality. But there's something curious that's unleashed by that speech of Samuel Jackson's character, which is essentially that the chain of violence is then begun that takes over in the second half of the film and sort of ha- and spirals with this inexorable logic that sort of pulls all the characters into its wake. And at the end of it, it seems to me that what Tarantino is is seeking, right, what he's seeking for the Samuel L. Jackson character in this movie, what he's seeking for the Melanie Laurent character, the Jewish woman in, in Inglorious Bastards, and what he's seeking for Django and his wife in Django Unchained is this version of sort of historical revenge that in the end just, to me, just resembles a, kind of a, a general bloodbath for all. That seems to be Quentin Tarantino's grand desire for history, that we get to go back and slaughter the people who created the slaughter in the first place. It, it just all seems to me like the logic of, 
I don't know, just tyranny and bloodshed. It, I, I think this is, I think, where we're getting at the ineffable evil that I'm talking about. That I have a hard time kicking back and being entertained by the cool roadshow, 70 millimeter with the great Ennio Morricone score and the beautiful antique lensing and all of this stuff that looks so cool and great. That seems in the end to be just saying, wouldn't it be great if we could go back in history and just slaughter the fuck out of all those motherfuckers? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like Richard Brody said it really beautifully in his his also ambivalent review of, of The Hateful Eight, where he said something like, you know, for all of his his ambition and for all of his talent, that in the end, Tarantino is like this child making, he says, mud pies or rather blood pies, you know, that his, his movies end up having this feeling of like, look what I can do. I can make it turn out different. And given the fact that he is a white man and a notoriously loud mouthed white man in his public persona, it's just it's hard for me to take him seriously as this kind of adjudicator of history for all of these groups. Is that wrong? I mean, I guess I don't look at him that way. And I, I think also... And maybe this is me just like pushing it all to the back and and willfully ignoring the the bloodbaths. But I feel like that's not just what he's getting at. I mean, that's what we remember because it's so it's usually the final thing in any scene or in any movie. It's the most, you know, elaborate and most like perfectly crafted part of any Tarantino movie aside from the script. But I think that so many times when people get revenge in his movies, there's so much dialogue before that kind of sets it up in a way and is important in that sort of reversal of history. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, the dialogue is so dazzling to be in the presence of. It seems to me he's really interested in power and how people possess it and how they lose it and watching how his characters interact in these elaborate settings feels more to me than gory chess pieces being moved around. I feel like there's an interesting brain trying to think about interesting things, and I'm not sure he successfully synthesizes American history in a new and fascinating way, but I'm not sure, given all the other upsides of his movies, that that's the bar we need to hold him to. Like, I'm happier that he's making, as much as I enjoyed Grindhouse, which you could argue, and Matt Zoller Seitz did argue in his review, could be considered part of this trilogy if you want to make it a tetralogy and say that's the the women revenge one, even though it's not set in the past. But I think he's I'm glad that like phase, this current phase of his career has him reckoning with these big themes, even if he doesn't always successfully do it. It strikes me as risky and ambitious and not just, you know, more self-satisfied crime dramas with like cool talking criminals. And these are certainly self-satisfied in their own off-putting way and have all the gore and the n-words and plenty of things to complain about but I'm glad he's making these movies and I'm glad I saw this one and seeing it made me want to move Django Unchained up my list of movies to watch. Well, I will say that he is one of those filmmakers whose movies I would never miss, even though the reaction that they give me is often one of flesh-crawling revulsion. <laughs> because he's, you're right, he's gifted and he's interesting and he's trying to do big, interesting things. The ways in which his movies resemble each other is starting to get to me more than the ways in which they don't. In other words, his creative ambition continues to multiply, but I'm not sure that his moral imagination has really grown since Reservoir Dogs. And I, that's the moment that I'm still waiting for from Tarantino. All right. Next movie. Maybe next movie. Next time. All right. Well, we could go on and on about Quentin Tarantino, but we've got another topic still to go. So please, all of you, go on and on about Quentin Tarantino on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. And now it's time for a word from our other sponsor, Julia. Thanks, Dana. 
Our other sponsor this week is Carbonite. How much of your life is on your computer? Uh, both Aisha and Dana are sitting before me here with computers that I'm sure contain much of their lives. What if your digital files vanished forever? With Carbonite Cloud Backup, your photos, music, documents, and other files are backed up automatically to the cloud. More than 1.5 million home and small business customers trust Carbonite, so start your free trial today at Carbonite.com, no credit card required. And use offer code CULTURE to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. That's Carbonite.com, offer code CULTURE. This is the sort of thing that's on everybody's New Year's to-do list is like, this is the year that I'm going to set up cloud backup and make sure that my precious photos of my children will never disappear in one fell swoop. So one great way to do that is Carbonite.com. Again, use promo code CULTURE. All right, what's next? Thanks, Julia. On with the show. Making a Murderer is a 10-part Netflix documentary series. The filmmakers Laura Ricciardi and Maura Demos spent over 10 years working on this documentary, which follows the incredible true story of a Wisconsin man named Stephen Avery. There are so many twists and turns here. We don't want to spoil too much, but we need to spoil enough facts to get a, a basic setup of this of this story. Julia, can you help me out? Yeah. So Stephen Avery is a Wisconsin man. He was accused and convicted of rape and served 18 years before DNA evidence conclusively exonerated him. When he was released, he became a poster child for the innocence project there were uh criminal justice reforms passed in his name and he also sued local law enforcement authorities in part because it seemed that they failed to act on or share or properly disclose potentially exculpatory evidence pointed to the man who actually committed the crime it turns out this is all merely prelude to the story shortly after his release avery is accused of another crime a grisly murder of a young woman and I think that takes us through episode three and the question of whether he committed this other murder, why he committed it, whether the local police enforcement went after him as a potential suspect for it, in part because of their own financial risk and liability, given their misdeeds in his earlier case, all begins to unspool in a complicated, sprawling morass of characters, prosecutors, sheriffs, cops, family members. Uh, family members of victims. I mean, it's a it's a sprawling cast and a and an unruly story. And I will say, I'm only at three episodes through, and I have no idea where it's going. You guys have watched more of it than me. I think Aisha, you've seen all of it, and Dana, you're through six and a half episodes. So I will be spoiled a bit in this episode. I think we'll probably talk about it a little bit more than I've said here. If listeners uh, haven't watched the show yet and want to watch it in a pristine state of mind, they can skip ahead to where Anne says. You'll want to skip ahead to 57 minutes and 10 seconds. So if you're still listening, you're willing to be at least partially spoiled for making a murderer, although I myself don't want to hear what happens in the very last three episodes. So Aisha, I'm issuing my own spoiler warning for you. Um, I think the most striking thing to me about this show, and it's something that June Thomas wrote about for Slate, is its lack of a narrator. It's something that takes a little while to sink in, because in some ways this feels like a conventionally structured true crime documentary you might have seen before with clips of you know new TV news from the time and then talking head interviews with various figures from the story and then some courtroom footage, which we get lots and lots of. We're lucky for the storytellers here that Wisconsin is a state that allows trials to be filmed, which many states don't. And so there is not just courtroom sketches and, and summaries of what happened, but actual courtroom footage. But there's nothing tying it all together. There's no voice of authority saying, and now we join 
the family at Avery's Auto Parts. And to the extent that there's editorializing being done, right, it's being done by what the filmmakers choose to show, how they choose to edit it together, and not by a, a voice of authority that tells us what's going on. And that, to me, was a, was a big plus. But it also means that as a viewer, you really have to be on your toes. You're not going to get it spoon-fed and summarized for you. There's no last week on, right, since this was a, a Netflix dump, one of those shows that comes out all at once. There's not sort of a, a recap of the last show each time. Yeah, I mean, I think June's spoke to this idea in her piece, but like it made me actually sit down and watch it. Like I couldn't not be watching my computer or my TV when I I was watching it. Like usually even in the most engrossing TV shows, I will be at some point I'll have to like click over and do this or like check my email or, you know, run to the bathroom, whatever. But like, <laughs> well, a millennial's attention was held. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, because it, it had to be. And actually, in fact, I found myself when I realized that this is going to be the case, like I don't think I really fully grasp it until like close to the end of the first episode. When I realized this is going to be the case, I was like, okay, I mean, I guess this is what's happening. Like I, whenever I sit down to do this, I can't, I, I have to devote time to it because you miss so much stuff on the scrolling screen. And even sometimes, you know, I would actually like go and I'd, I'd type something and then I like hear silence for a little while. Like, or you hear like the music, but like you don't hear anyone talking. And then it's like, Oh shit! Like there's 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 something happening on the screen, so I had to go back and like rewind, and it was like <laughs> it was kind of it was it was a very labor intensive. It's experience. very information dense, and as it goes on, new characters emerge. I mean, by the time you get to episode five or six, Dean Strang, the the lawyer for the Stephen Avery side, has become as significant a character as you know anyone in the Avery family, and so there's there's sort of little subsets of characters that emerge. It what it reminded me of in terms of its storytelling strategy the most was Serial, the podcast Serial, which is now in its second season which was accused at the time, and I think this show has been accused too, perhaps rightly, of strategically withholding information so that there can be a twist at the end of each episode, right? I mean, the filmmakers know more than we do, and they're able to dispense these these nuggets of kind of shocking new revelations. That I, make, I make it sound more tawdry than it actually is. I think that this show admirably holds back from being tawdry in those revelations, but it certainly is concerned with the pacing of that release. Well, and it's very restrained. I mean, there's a version of this documentary where you pitch the whole thing at the top and you make this you make this elaborate sell, which is the guy was wrongly convicted. He spent 18 years of life in jail. It tore him away from his day-old babies uh, and ruined his first family. Uh, ruined his relationships. He came out. He was released. He was he you know was on the on the brink of getting some recompense for that injustice. And then this other calamity either fell on his head or he brought it on his head, depending on what you believe about his guilt in the in the case. And the temptation to do that when you make a product for consumption is high, right? Like there's a thousand shows to watch. There's so many things for us all to look at. To have the confidence to. And I, because this came out when we were on vacation, I actually just didn't know there was even a second crime. So I watched the whole first episode just thinking that was the story. Like we were going to learn about his first wrongful conviction. I had no idea that was like the overture of this whole set of moving parts here. And to have the confidence in the story and the depth of the materials that these filmmakers uncovered to step back and just trust that the ongoing narrative will pull people along, I thought was striking and interesting. But I also think it's fascinating that you compare it to Serial because Serial has an incredibly ostentatious narrator. I mean, I think a fair accusation to make about Serial is that it's almost too much about Sarah Koenig and what she believes. Like the finale of Serial, because they were unable to prove conclusively one way or the other whether Adnan Syed 
committed the crime that he was accused of is Sarah Koenig announcing that she believes he didn't do it, right? Like it is... You're right. It is funny to compare them because it's so voicey, right? There's no, there's, there's sort of no true crime story I can think of that has more of a narrative voice than serial. So I guess I was talking more about the, you know, the strategic release of, of information. And I think you're right that there's a similar amount of canniness and calculation about how the how the components of the story are compiled here. But the feel of this to me is quite different. Instead of feeling like this very carefully controlled and titrated little dosages of mystery, suspense, investigation result, there is just so much. There's so much context about the town. There's so much archival footage. I mean, the research process and the amount of labor that went into this documentary. There's footage of people putting up individual flyers for the young woman who goes missing before they know she's dead. Like there's so much raw raw material to engage with yourself in a way that feels quite distinct from how these stories are usually told and is a, a novel and satisfying viewing experience. Yeah, apparently the filmmakers were working with something like 600 to 700 hours of footage. I don't think all of it shot by them. Like you say, some of it was obtained from you know various legal sources or, or news camera sources. But that, to, to get six to 700 hours of footage down into 10 hours, you know, it starts to make you feel like, well, this is not so spread out and sprawling. It's, it's actually highly condensed. I'm curious before we adjourn here, guys, what you make more broadly of the true crime boom. First, I think you can make the case that a story like this or a story like the one portrayed in the first season of Serial help familiarize viewers with how the criminal justice system actually works and takes it out of the realm of, you know, law and order, easy gavels, and every so often justice goes the wrong way and uh, Sam Waterston ruefully looks out a window, but otherwise things pretty much go as they should and just injects a much needed dose of realism about how bureaucratic and confused and messy our criminal justice process can be? Or do you think that by focusing on these extraordinary cold cases and unsolved cases and cases where things may have gone potentially wildly awry, the makers of these cultural products are doing a disservice and focusing our attention on the lurid and the exceptional and not actually how criminal justice typically works? So I guess that's question one, is sort of the portrayal of the criminal justice system. And then question two is just what do we make of being entertained by the life travesties of these, in these two cases, these young men? Like, what does it mean that all of upper middle class America is like, I, I'm so mesmerized, I can't wait to hear what happens next in the story of the calamities that befell this poor young Wisconsin guy or this you know poor young guy in Baltimore? I think to your first point, in a way, it does seem like kind of cherry picking these very extraordinary examples of of injustice can be a disservice, especially because even after viewing all of this Netflix series, I still see random people on the internet and also Facebook friends like suggesting that Stephen Avery should have been should have been convicted. And granted, I know obviously things are left out of of this story because as we mentioned earlier, there were 600, 700 hours of footage. So it can all be um, included. And the filmmakers clearly have a very express purpose of like pointing out that this was wrong. But I do think that it's it's hard to watch this, this show without feeling, even if you think he did do it, he shouldn't have been convicted 
based on the way that all the evidence was should have been a mistrial right it should have been like there there's no way <laughs> that uh, that he should have been convicted based on what happened so i think that there are always going to be people who you know find a way to suggest that this was just a one case out of many and this is not the way our criminal justice system works i do think on the other hand that so many people watching this over a 10-hour span rather than just, you know, a dateline or a nightline episode, I do think that it does help to kind of, because there's so much and there are so many injustices, one can look at it and say, well, yes, this all happened in one thing, but one of those things could have happened to any case. And then there's a ripple effect throughout. Like, it could be your case. It could be someone that you, you know, or it could be, this probably happens fairly frequently if it's allowed to continue to happen in this small town. Well, it also makes you think about some topics that are never directly raised on the show, like the death penalty, right? There isn't really any question ever of ever getting the death penalty. But the fact that this kind of miscarriage of justice can happen at this level makes you think, oh, my God, we're sentencing people. You know, we're, we're taking away people's lives who might be just as innocent as, as Stephen Avery. So in that sense, there is some public service being done. I mean, I, I guess if you feel morally repulsed by the mere idea of sort of um, entertaining yourself, as you say, Julia, with with the story of someone else's suffering, then this show would probably repel you. But I feel like his case is handled very, I mean, tastefully is the wrong word, but almost almost lovingly by these filmmakers. I feel like it's, it's, it's a gesture of generosity towards Stephen Avery and his family that this 10-hour documentary was made, and it doesn't feel exploitive of them. That could be my own you know, moral defense for my enjoyment of the show, but I don't feel when I sit down to watch it like, I can't wait to see what horrible injustice will be, befall the Averys this time. It, there really is more of a sense of you know wanting to hang in there and wanting to see if justice is done. It does seem so patient. It seems so human and so patient in its execution. I don't I don't find its execution off-putting or the project off-putting at all. And I mean, you know, narratives about wrongdoing are important. They're important correctives to society. They're important things to encounter. I mean, there's there's moral worth to that work. But it, the thing that's a little bewildering about it, and Ruth Graham wrote about this for Slate, is that encountering a narrative like that that you're typically used to encountering in more of a journalism format, even if that format is sort of an hour-long documentary on 60 Minutes or something like that, even if it's a televisual journalism format, when you connect it to serialized storytelling tactics and you have like recaps and spoilers and internet crushes on Dean Strang, the defense attorney, it, it feels a little unseemly. But I think in the end, the attention to these stories and the care that the filmmakers put into it in both the gathering of evidence and in the delivery of the story seemed quite impressive to me. All right. But I, I would say that all three of us would, would say that if you're interested in true crime narratives and don't feel morally unclean watching them, that this would be one worth watching. Yes? Yeah, for sure. I'm going to try and keep watching it, I think. Well, if you all feel morally up to it, go watch Making a Murderer, streaming on Netflix now and write into facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell us what you think. And we've done it. We've reached the moment in our show when we endorse. Julia, what do you have this week? I read such a good book over my vacation. I read Mary Carr's Lit. And I've somehow never read any of Mary Carr's memoirs. So what's what's wrong with me and my life, I think, is the conclusion I've come to after reading her third and probably least acclaimed memoir first and having it still be the only thing of hers I've ever read. But it's a wonderful memoir of being an alcoholic and figuring out how not to drink anymore 
but it's also about marriage and love and family and ambition and writing and finding yourself in the world. And she's just such good company on the page. So as soon as I finish Making a Murderer and listen to the complete catalog of David Bowie, I'm going to go back and read her first two memoirs as well. Oh, I could. I'm so happy you've discovered Mary Carr, Julia. We were just talking about her in your absence the other week because Laura Miller put The Art of Memoir, her new book, on her best books of the year list. It was the only book on Laura's list that I had read because I read every grocery list that Mary Carr will throw my way. She is such a great writer, and I recommend all three volumes of that autobiography. They're they're great. The first one, The Liar's Club, is about her childhood, and then Cherry is about her adolescence. I agree with you. I think Lit is actually my favorite of the three memoirs, the one about her alcoholism and her recovery from it. And I discovered it because a friend of mine who was in recovery pressed it on me and basically said, if you want to understand alcoholism, read this book. And uh, and I still sort of feel like many addiction stories and stories about people under in the grip of some addiction they can't control will send me back to Mary Carr's lit and how vividly she writes about that experience. Aisha, what have you got? I'm going to endorse a movie that came out last year. I um, saw it at Sundance first, and um, I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, that it gets an Oscar nomination for its lead, uh, Lily Tomlin. Uh, Grandma, it's a really fun but also touching film about a woman played by Lily Tomlin who um, is helping her granddaughter try to raise money to get an abortion. Her granddaughter, I think, is 16, 15, 16. And it's kind of a travel sort of narrative. Uh, they go to different places around California. They they talk to different people that who are all part of uh, Lily Tomlin's character's life. And it's just a really great, fun movie. And Lily Tomlin is just, it makes me so happy that she's finally getting some like great dramatic roles in her later career. She's just fantastic. And I say this not only because I, you know, interviewed her at Sundance last year, but just because I, it's, it's a performance that has stayed with me even a year later. And uh, maybe we'll hear her name called later this week. Uh, if so, I would love to see her get that nomination. Oh, that would be exciting. It doesn't sound like a very Oscar-y thing to happen, but she is such yeah. a genius, Lily Tomlin. How about you, Dana? So my endorsement this week, we talked a lot in our David Bowie segment about songs David Bowie sang and movies that he made and things written about him. I wanted to endorse something written by David Bowie for New York Magazine in 2003, which they reprinted this week after his death, in which he describes, among other things, he kicks off by describing being 19 years old in 1966 and hearing the Velvet Underground and Nico for the first time and how that changed his, his, his feelings about music. Then he goes on to talk about New York City and his first experiences here. And it's just a little piece of autobiographical writing by David Bowie. It's so beautifully written. It makes you makes you realize that he could have had another whole career, that that creative force he had for songwriting and performing and creating his persona could also have, have turned him into just a wonderful writer and memoirist. So if you want to read it, it's on New York Magazine's website, and the title they have it running under is Read David Bowie's Reflection on Being a New Yorker. All right. Well, that's our show. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Dana. And Aisha, thanks so much for sitting in for Stephen this week. Thanks for having me, guys. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. Or you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, which is, of course, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out their entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. For Julia Turner and Aisha Harris, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you next week. 
Hey, this is Gabriel Roth, and I'm the host of the Slate Serial Spoiler Special, the podcast that accompanies the second season of Serial, which debuted this week. Every week, Slate writer Katie Waldman and I will dig into the latest episode, parsing the latest developments, clues, hints, and ideas, hopefully getting us a little closer to the truth behind the case of Bo Bergdahl. So join us every week after Serial. Serial. 